Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of the New European. Write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the European, please join us. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast with Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. I'm back from a touch of COVID, a really nasty bit of business. It left me feeling really sick and it's now lingering unpleasantly, a bit like the Prime Minister then. On this week's podcast, I'll be joined by the comedian and impressionist Matt Ford, who'll be talking about uh, sharing a stage with Jacob Rees-Mogg. He'll be going over his thoughts on Jimmy Carr and that controversial spitting image sketch about Jess Phillips, and he'll also be uh, delivering a progress report on Keir Starmer. And then we will be putting more pompous politicians and putrid pundits into the Hall of Shame. Talking of pompous politicians, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the new Minister for Brexit Opportunities, is on the cover of the New European this week. And this week, Jacob Rees-Mogg has said that Brexit is already a success. And he said that the evidence that leaving the EU has damaged uh, trade in the UK is few and far between. So I wanted to read you all a letter to the podcast from Tim Clapham in Poland. And Jacob, if you're listening, please take note. Tim Clapham writes, we live in Poland. We ordered some quality Nottingham lace for our granddaughter's wedding dress. It was ordered from a small company in Selkirk called Penelope Textiles. With shipping, the lace cost £116.40. The UK tax was £26.77. So the total was £143.40. It was dispatched in the beginning of November, shortly after our order was received. So well done, Penelope Textiles. Well done to a small British company. However, the lace was not cleared by Polish customs until the end of January. That's nearly two months. We collected today, and the duty was 155 zloty, equivalent to nearly £30. In other words, even ignoring the delays caused by the time to clear the goods, the cost of the goods has effectively increased by 25%. Tim continues, The law of supply and demand tells us clearly that the quantity demanded after such a price hike is going to be much lower. 
In addition, European consumers need to complete customs paperwork to clear their goods. Any incentive for Europeans to order specialised products from small UK companies is now gone. Perhaps Jacob Rees-Mogg, in his new position, might like to explain to Penelope Textiles the advantages of Brexit. Thank you, Tim. I can't say it any better than you just did. Now, before we welcome Matt Ford, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of the 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new new European feed you found this episode. And if you want to support us to do more brilliant journalism like the 27, please subscribe, theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Our guest this week is a comedian, writer and performer who is setting off on a stand-up tour with his new show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. He's also embarking on more of his political party shows in the West End. They're turned into podcasts. They've got the likes of Neil Kinnock, Jacob Rees-Mogg coming up. And, of course, he's one of the writers and performers on the new-ish Spitting Image. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Ford. It's lovely to have you. Let's start with a, a question that I remember comedians being asked a, about another Prime Minister about 32 years ago. If if Boris Johnson goes, will you miss him? <laughs> um, politically, absolutely not. As a citizen, absolutely not. I mean, it's still... You know, there are periods when I really get angry about the fact that he's Prime Minister and also that the choice at the last election was him and Jeremy Corbyn. That really is a disgrace. And, and, it, and it's still, I periodically get so wound up by it that what I'm used to, you know, it's not, my issue isn't so much that we have a conservative government. I'm used to being governed by people that I didn't vote for, mainly because, you know, for most of my life, the Labour Party has chosen to go crackers. So I've had to get used to being governed by Tories. But... It's the individual and what he represents. He was never good enough. 
He was always a luxurious choice. There was never a good time to have to have him. And fate delivered us the worst possible time. And it really exposed how, uh, you know, all political parties go mad. But the last few years, Labour and the Tories went mad at the same time. Mm. And as a public, we have been punished. People say this, you know, oh, well, you get what you choose. The choice was Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson. That was no choice at all. That wasn't fair. You cannot blame the citizens of this island for the fact that we are governed by this guy because political parties, the gatekeepers of the political process, they are meant to choose the best possible candidate and both of them didn't. And it still winds me up. So every time, every day that he's there really is an offence to what politics should be in a democracy in a country like ours. That said, obviously, comedically, I get a lot of mileage out of impersonating it. But the thing is, there'll always be a market for Boris impressions and I'll just have to move on to whoever... Uh, governs next so uh, you know I've got a, I've got a fairly decent Rishi Sunak uh, although it sounds like I'll have to start polishing a, a Liz Truss impression I mean it's, I guess it's I guess it's easier to perform comedy about somebody like Boris Johnson who's you know overtly comedic larger than life comes with this personality is it harder to write for him rather than somebody who's more of a blank canvas that you can impose your own ideas on uh, not really, no. I mean, you know, as you say, he is so comedic. You know, the fact that when you think of the big uh, sort of inquiries of the last 10 or 15 years, Leveson, Chilcott, you know, you could even include Hutton, Butler. They were all about policy decisions. He is currently under police investigation for having illegal house parties. This is the sort of thing. So it's just that in itself. You know, you're trying to, this is what's comedic about him, and it was the same with Trump, was you're trying to hold this guy to account using apparatus built for holding to account serious people, which then makes it inherently ludicrous because you're you're talking seriously about a guy who's not serious. Obviously, the consequences of his behaviour are very serious, but he himself isn't, and he's created a persona that deliberately isn't. I find it an insult to the country that we're led by him. But no, you, you know, your, your initial um, your initial sort of theory is correct, is that he is a lot easier to do comedy about than, say, mm. someone like um, Nick Clegg or, you know, or, or to take like a serious Labour person like Hillary Benn. To be, you know, the, obviously there's stuff you could do, but with Boris, you're so far ahead already. And it was the same with Trump. It's the same with any sort of communication, I guess. If the audience know who this person already is and they know the persona, it's so much easier to do jokes about them. So yes. he, he is so much easier. The, the 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 discipline obviously comes from not making an entire show about him and not just concentrating on the easy stuff and getting him on some of the more nuanced stuff. But, you know, he is sadly a, a great comedic gift. He's in, in bluster mode. He is um, against Starmer at PMQs. He is something to... To behold, isn't he? I mean, that that sort of stream of consciousness throwing out of untrue facts, smears, uh, the, the the Mr. Speaker occasionally. That that's kind of a gift to any comedian, isn't it? It certainly is. As an impressionist, you know, I do Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, and now Lindsay Hoyle, so I can do sort of one-man PMQs <laughs> type thing. And what's really interesting with Boris, uh, you know, the sort of stream of consciousness. You know, when he was doing it. Uh, at the Tory party conference and kippers and Pippa Pig world and all that sort of thing. You're like, well, it's a fairly harmless act to a, a hall full of adoring Tories, right? When he's doing it at the dispatch box, when he's being held to account for breaking the law, 
it suddenly looks like the panicked, mm. desperate, flailing desire for attention that it really is. You know, you say, oh, uh, and the old Wim Robertson, and Captain Einstein, we wouldn't have had the vaccine. And, and he's just desperately chucking. There is literally no filter. The first thing that comes into his head is spewing out of his mouth. That's not someone in control. That is someone in a state of panic. And I think it really shows. And obviously it really contrasts against Starmer, who's basically unflappable. I mean, one of the great things about politics, it's the same thing about sports sometimes. These narratives just evolve. And at the time that the prime minister is under investigation himself, under police investigation, the Labour Party chose to elect a leader who's the former director of public prosecutions. And that's the sort of thing, if ITV put it in a drama, you'd say, oh, that's a bit hammy, you know. Mm. You get former lawyers, but a former director of public prosecution. You know, it's just a great theatrical sort of dramatic strand to the whole thing. The people who are likely to replace Johnson, obviously you've mentioned Sunak, you've mentioned Liz Truss, they are quite colourless, hopefully more competent by comparison. After this sort of the frenzy of the last decade, is our politics about to calm down, do you think? Or are we just in permanent frenzy mode now, eternally divided? I think there's always going to be an element of division. I mean, and that's not a bad thing. I think that what's been so concerning, really since the Scottish referendum in 2014, has been the tone of the division. We're used to going through general elections. I vaguely remember the Thatcher era. People a generation or two are older than me remember it, obviously, as a, as a deeply tumultuous time. The 1970s was a very fractious period. And that was against a backdrop of far lower wages and, and you know, a far less educated and healthy country. So we've come a long way in, in many positive ways. I think at the moment, the danger is you have these, every major party since 2014, and that was really the start of it, was the SNP and the Yes movement turned a blind eye to some frankly disgraceful behaviour. And then Corbyn comes in and starts running the Labour Party, and the same thing happens. And you have these online armies of people that just monster people, and it spills over. Jim Murphy was attacked in the street, and if you read some of the news reports at the time, they're talking about Jewish conspiracies, and they're accusing him of either being a paedophile or protecting paedophiles. Now, this is exactly the same thing that happened to Keir Starmer the other day. This has been around a long time, and it's just that every major party has effectively, for a period of time, turned a blind eye to it. And then you have the Prime Minister dog whistling this stuff on the floor of the House of Commons. So that's the stuff that concerns me is that there are genies out of bottles now where mainstream parties have allowed their own supporters to be hooligans, to do things that are completely distasteful. And I don't know how you kind of repair that. Keir Starmer's, you know, replace, you know, Keir Starmer coming in after Jeremy Corbyn is a huge correction to British politics. It calms that mm. area down. But the hard left are just as prone to still believing a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff that's out. If you look at the Julian Assange stuff, it unites people in all sorts of weird caucuses, Scottish independence, the Tories, Brexit, you know, this sort of weird conspiracy Pamela Anderson. Well, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it sucks in a lot of different people. That's what I really worry about, is that this infection is now in the mainstream. So the election of Keir Starmer was a very important correction. And if the Tories replace Boris Johnson with someone more calm and sensible, that will be an important correction. But I fear that we're in a situation now where the mainstream allowed this filth in. And I don't know how you then push it back out. Yeah. Well, I do want to come back to, to Starmer and Corbyn in a minute. 
people will obviously a lot of, a lot of listeners to this podcast will 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 listen to to political party and be aware of political party as well and obviously a lot of the people you've had on there are, are remainers they're people from the left they're people from the center you've had but you've had david davis on you've got edwina curry coming up you've got jacob reese mod coming up do you sometimes worry that when you have somebody on like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who I think is a fairly nasty piece of work, that you all there's there's some element of normalisation that there's a bit of, you know, Jimmy Fallon ruffling the hair of, of Donald Trump, um, and, and are there people that you definitely wouldn't have on, or is it open opportunity? Well, I think you'd have to be careful, um, and I think that's a very good point. But I think it's really important to talk to people outside of your mm. comfort zone. I think it's really important to talk to people that you disagree with as long as it's done in a civil way. Um, I've had Jacob Rees-Mogg on the podcast before. He was, he was a brilliant guest. And, there, you know, there are lots of people in the House of Commons who tell you actually they get on very well with him, including Jess Phillips yes. and, uh, you know, members of the SNP. You know, sometimes these friendships form in places that you would least expect it. Sometimes politicians say things that I completely disagree with. Uh, and they're in parties that I would never vote for. But that doesn't stop me being fascinated by them. Obviously, you have to draw the line, but he's a government minister. Um, therefore, he's he's effectively a, a mainstream politician. I've had him on the podcast before. I, you know, it's not... Having someone on is never an endorsement of their views. And it doesn't mean that I don't ask them difficult questions. It's just that I ask them in a different way. You know, the show was set up to be an antidote to confrontational interviews where politicians don't get the time to be themselves and to give longer honest answers so I've had people from left and right that I completely disagree with people like John Landsman people like Ken Livingston um as well as people on the right you know I mean the people in the center you know <laughs> new labor became ultra factionalized you know, the people from different new labor or you know the sort of certainly the last labor government period that I was uh, in disagreement with so I think you have to obviously be very alert and, and constantly be uh, aware about who you're having on. But I don't think my podcast is going to normalise anyone. And I don't think uh, that it would ever stop me asking them difficult questions because it doesn't. Um, and I think it is important that as, as divided as we've become and as strong as my views are on various constitutional and, and political issues, that I don't stop talking to people on the other side of them. Just before we recorded this, I'm, I'm, I was looking down celebrity tributes and journalistic tributes. PJ O'Rourke has died, who, you know, I thought was very funny on occasion. Some of the things that, that he wrote, I didn't think were, were, were very funny. Uh, and he did inspire, his, his least funny moments seemed to inspire um, a, a whole sort of generation of unfunny right-wing British uh, men, which we come back to. Who were the people that sort of inspired you when you were growing up to to, to want to do political comedy? Who, who were the people who, who made you think, this is what I want to do for a living? Well, Rory Bremner would be the first. And the fact that he was such a majestic impressionist really um, was, was, you know, such a huge influence on me. He was phenomenal. And, and what he had was the ability... You know, probably the greatest impersonator that's ever lived. His range is astonishing. And even just his facial movements when he's taking on these people, he really is the master. But he also was able to do a mixture of different types of comedy. He did very silly stuff, a lot of filth, but also did very cutting satire that was always very funny. And I just thought, what an amazing influence, really. He was just phenomenal. So when I started impersonating people, he was really the, the sort of primary influence on me, really. Um, and then 
have I got news for you in private eye? You know, they were just, when I was first getting into politics and first getting into political comedy, have I got news for you is huge. Still going, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a total institution. And I just found that amazing that, for, you know, certainly during the 90s, the most electric show on telly was this topical panel show where they mm. would really tear the government to shreds. And I just found that so thrilling. And then Private Eye, I got into because I was watching Have I Got News For You and I figured out who Ian Hislop was and I you know, started reading that as a kid. And that was just, I just demolished all that. So they were the, they were the three mainly, but, but first and foremost, it would be Rory Bremner. Well, what a joy those things have, uh, have, have been. Um, the, I mean, I'm presuming, did you arrive a bit too late for the original spitting image? Um, and, and how is how is the version of spitting image that you're doing now different to uh, to, to, to the one that that, oh, that I grew up with? Yes, I, I was a little late. I mean, I remember getting, I remember the very, te- I remember it in a kind of just general way that I remember being at primary school. And one of my mates said, "Oh my god, you see this thing on telly last night? Neil Kinnock pulled Maggie Thatcher's pubes out with a plier." What? So it was. It first came to me, I, I guess, through the playground whispers as a kind of what would be now the South Park of its day. You know, it was to, to children, certainly it was like a gross out, disgusting, lewd thing. And then as you grow older, you realise actually it was this, you know, totemic piece of British satire, um, as well as being outrageous and filthy and all the rest of it. So I, I slightly missed it purely because of age. I did have the Euro 96 special that they made on video that I loved. So it's quite hard for me to say, actually, it, it, having not fully devoured the original, it, I, in a way, I, I'm not in a position age-wise to be able to fully compare the two. I mean, at their heart is still the genius of Roger Law, of these amazing puppets that are simultaneously lifelike but grotesque recreations of powerful and prominent people underpinned by impressions and funny jokes. So, you know, it's, it, it very much is the legacy of spitting image. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really in a position to, to, to give you a, 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 a play by play <laughs> thorough analysis, but I mean, I just sort of presumed that it's where, you know, it, it's just, we picked up where it left off with, 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 you know, but in the time that we're in. Well, it was kind of, I mean, that was kind of Sunday night, appointment to view viewing in the days when there was appointment to, to, to view stuff nowadays it's kind of absorbed by uh through social i guess a lot a lot of it if you've not got brit box subscription and that means you don't get the, the the context of some things and you don't get the flow of them and then you get sort of controversial things like the the, the jess phillips sketch so i wanted to ask you about that was was that a mistake and then i wanted to ask you how you viewed the the Jimmy Carr thing, which again we saw all saw as a, a you know a fifteen second, thirty second clip the other day. Do you think that there are some jokes that shouldn't be told, or are all jokes okay as long as somebody finds them funny? I mean, where to start? I mean, on the Jess Phillips thing, I didn't write that joke, and uh, that didn't stop people on social media blaming me for it. Um, you know, that's the world we live in, and yes. I think, I think. Sadly, you know, mobs get things wrong. I wasn't a fan of the joke. In fact, I was against it, which was a sort of cruel twist of irony, given that so many people thought I'd written it. But I think you have to be philosophical sometimes in comedy. And when you're making topical shows that are turned around very quickly, you're figuring out the line as you kind of go. And, you know, as a room, sometimes you'll discuss things um, and you win some, you lose some, you know, and... Um, I didn't like that particular line, but it stayed in. And, and that's that, you know, I'm sure there'll be jokes that I put in that other people didn't like. And in the end, you know, 
I think you need to be pushing the envelope in the right way and attacking people in the right way and satirizing people in the right way. And uh, that was why I wasn't keen on that line myself. But there we go. Uh, it wasn't my call. Uh, you know, it's above my pay grade. I, I um, don't run the show. And, uh, you know, it was broadcast and that was that. Uh, as for Jimmy Carr, I mean, it's difficult, you know, because I wouldn't tell jokes like that. Again, you know, I mean, I thought the Jess Phillips line was too strong, let alone the stuff that that Jimmy says. So I don't know. I, I think it's really hard if you don't do that sort of comedy when obviously his whole... You know, that, I mean, the show's called His Dark Material. The whole mm. thing is about these are jokes that are going to offend. So I think if... I have really mixed feelings about it. I would never tell jokes like that. I don't think the Holocaust is funny. Uh, you know, it just... It, I'm the sort of comedian that like tries not to cause offence. So it's just, I, I find it, you know, I, I, I just would be, I don't know. I just think I can't imagine myself ever telling a joke like that on stage. I just think, my God, you know, it's just not the sort of thing that I would do. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's I mean, it tests it, your it, liberal, it really tests your own liberalism, doesn't it? Because on one hand, do you say, well, every joke is okay. Yeah. And I'm not sure I do believe that, you know, I certainly, if I wouldn't tell it, but do, you know, I, I think it's so difficult that I, I'm sort of only going to be able to give you a terribly inarticulate answer, but yes, I mean, on, on both counts, not jokes that I would write or tell, but you know, should comedy, this is the problem, isn't it? Is that theoretically you go, well, of course, comedy should be allowed to push boundaries and freedom of speech and all these things. Um, that I think I believe in. Mm. And then you see certain jokes that you don't like. And obviously the Jimmy Carr one is kind of right out there. And you go, oh God, do I believe in freedom of speech? You know, do I think it's okay to joke about everything? I guess the, the question then is, you know, what should you do about this stuff? Should it be taken down? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think, um, I think it's because it's not the sort of comedy I do. It, it, I, find, I find it all a bit bizarre. I just, I don't... I, the thought of standing in front of a crowd and saying the most offensive thing possible fills me with such yes. appalling dread that I almost can't engage with it. Yes, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 I don't, well, there's, I guess there's a certain bravery in doing it, but then bravery is probably the wrong, uh, the, the, the wrong phrase, isn't it? Let's 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 end with something that totally uncontroversial. Jeremy Corbyn and Twitter, then, because. Obviously, you you let your Labour membership lapse after the election of Jeremy Corbyn. That makes two of us, although obviously yeah. a lot of people did the opposite to us, didn't they? So, yeah. And this morning, again, I was looking at some of the reaction on Twitter to you praising Keir Starmer for, I think it was what he said about NATO. I mean, mm. completely grim reaction. Are, are we kidding ourselves that people like that are going to vote for Keir Starmer and Labour at the next election? And, and should we be worried about that? I mean, I, I should... <laughs> I didn't let my membership lapse. I actively cancelled it the moment he became leader. I, I resigned the moment that he took over the leadership of the Labour Party because I'd worked for Labour. I'd been around the movement long enough to know what he was like. I was appalled that Labour had chosen him. I was appalled that apparently intelligent, sensible people had overlooked some of the terrible things that he'd said and done in the past. Um, so I just wanted immediately out of there. I was horrified that the Labour Party had been captured by this effectively socialist worker party as for Keir Starmer I mean obviously the, he's not going to appeal to the hard left but I think he does appeal to the soft left and actually if you look at his poll ratings now he appeals to moderate Tories and the idea that Labour should be beholden 
to the least successful rump that ever governed it that, that crashed the car into the wall and gave it its worst election defeat in 1935, and that Labour should be straightjacketed on that side of the, you know, the political compass by people whose views will only lead you to... It's not just about losing elections. You've got people now... I was saying this to a mate of mine the other day. When you used to talk about pro-Russian sympathy in British politics, it would just always be on the hard left. Now as well, the Russians open up their wallets and you know, they can buy access to the upper echelons of the Tory party. So on one level, they have to pay for it. On another, you've got Labour people out there now just lobbying for free, spreading all this two sides nonsense, oh, both sides of the border. Mm. Ukraine's been at war with Russia for eight years trying to defend itself against this maniac who has, who has killed people in this country. He is an active threat, not just to our security as a nation, but to Western values. And you have people more in sympathy with him. Now, that's not just out of some dated loyalty to the Soviet Union, because Vladimir Putin certainly is not a communist. That partly explains it. It's also just this really immature view that everything bad in the world is a result of either capitalism or the West. And those phrases, including neoliberalism, are basically interchangeable, that everything must be America's fault. Therefore, we have to support any counterbalance to it, no matter how undemocratic it is, no matter how appalling its human rights abuses. Look what China's doing to Uyghur Muslims and the silence on the hard left about mm. these human rights atrocities. I don't think we, I, don't, I think the, the less Labour listens to people like that, the better, because one of the best things David Cameron ever said was Twitter isn't Britain. And every election result in the Twitter era tells you that, is that yes. Twitter um, can be these sort of online cesspit armies, but the British public are in a completely different place on left and right. You know, the British public are a broadly moderate group of people and they don't go in for any of the culture war stuff that came out of Brexit or independence or Corbyn or any of these other populist movements. The vast majority of British people are calm, rational people. And that is where general elections are won. And they are the people, you know, the vast majority of the people out there, you know, as Neil Kinnock would have said, the voice of the people out there mm. is louder than any booze. And that, you know, <laughs> he could have been talking in 1985, not to a Labour conference hall, but, but to, to Twitter. Because actually it is the voices of the people outside that are telling Labour to change. And the polls are very clear. They prefer Keir Starmer, not just to Jeremy Corbyn, but to Boris Johnson. So I think he's absolutely on the right track. I mean, most British people probably don't even know what NATO is. They've never been forced to think about this stuff be before now. It's just bonkers that, you know, most people, if you were to say, who do you trust, our allies in, you know, Europe and America or Vladimir Putin? <laughs> Can you imagine if you did that as a poll in, in, on any British high street? Yet on Twitter, you, you're giving this view that actually quite a lot of people are sympathetic to this rubbish. It's crazy, isn't it? How is how is Starmer for you then? Um, well, he's very, um, very professional, very important. Underlines himself a lot, Steve. It's very important that the prime minister. It's very important. So he, he has those sort of verbal ticks where he's, you know, when you're impersonating him, you really notice that he has those um, very kind of loyally, I guess, um, verbal ticks. Um, politically, he's been fantastic. He's sensible and calm. You know, I thought he, I think during the during the pandemic, he was absolutely right to be mature and non-party political. And I think in the way that he's dealt with internal Labour Party matters and repositioning the Labour Party is effectively a, a moderate centre ground party has been superb. He's still got a long way to go. I think he knows that. 
But in establishing himself as an alternative leader of the country, I think he's played a blinder. Good. And let's end with a wrap-up of your hectic schedule then. This is, this is going out on Thursday, February the 17th. Where can, where can people see you next? So at the South Bank Centre in London on Saturday the 19th of February and then across the country in Norwich, Nottingham, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Go to mattford.com for tickets to my tour, Clowns to the Left, Jokers to the Right. And every other Monday, my political party podcast, which you so kindly plugged earlier, um, has a residency at the Duchess Theatre. And my next two guests are Edwina Curry on the 21st of February and on the 7th of March, my guest is former leader of the Labour Party, Neil Kinnock. Superb. Good luck with it. That's the great Matt Ford. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, Steve. Before the Hall of Shame, I wanted to remind you about another excellent podcast from the New European, Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly. It tells the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. A superb listen. It's available where you got this podcast. So finally, it's time for a quick hall of shame where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that get my goat generally. Boris Johnson's excuse writers are in the hall of shame. Are we sure that this is going to be the excuse that repairs Boris Johnson's reputation? Remember those illegal parties that I said didn't exist and that I didn't go to? Uh, Well, they did exist and I was at them, but I didn't break the law because I had to run the country afterwards. You know, when Keith Richards had his own legal difficulties, I don't remember him telling the Canadian police, yes, I did take loads of coke and smack, but it doesn't matter because I didn't break the law because I went out and played guitar for the Rolling Stones directly afterwards. And from Keith Richards, where do you go to but to say, I like Egad Harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. In her terrible column, in the terrible Daily Express, the terrible Anne Widdicombe tackles the big royal issue of this week. And she writes... Though Prince Charles is right to slim down the archaic coronation service, he must be equally careful not to throw the baby out with the royal bathwater. And as for de-emphasising Christianity, I hope the Archbishop of Canterbury will see fit to remind him that upon ascending the throne, he'll become Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Yes, that's definitely the royal issue that's been on my mind uh, this week. Although I do want to know that 12 million quid would buy you 860,215 American hots from Pizza Express in Woking, the tasty option there for the man who doesn't sweat. Michael Crick is in the Hall of Fame, the political biographer. He says his latest subject, Nigel Farage, is not a racist, although Michael Crick admitted there is plenty of evidence that he used to be a racist. Uh, and that he sometimes panders to racists. And I'm looking forward to Michael Crick's next biography, in which he's going to explain why, despite captaining a pirate ship manned by pirates, while wearing a hat with a skull and crossbones on it and saying, keeping me capstans every five minutes, Captain Pogwash was definitely not a pirate. Uh, he does sound like Anne Widdicombe, though. I hope you've noticed that. And finally, Nigel Farage himself is in the Hall of Shame. He has written in the Daily Telegraph about why we've got to stop being beastly to Vladimir Putin about Ukraine. That's hall of shame worthy in itself. But this sentence written by Nigel Farage particularly struck me. To resolve any potential conflict in life, it is important to put yourself in the shoes of your opponent. Imagine if Nigel Farage actually did do that. Imagine if he did put himself in the shoes of his opponents. Then he'd be saying things like, I've just made a dangerous 
journey across the channel in a dinghy to protect my family. Why is this tweed-encrusted human Freddo bar hassling me in the budget hotel I've been put in while I claim £30 a week in benefits? And more topically, if Nigel Farage actually put himself in the shoes of his opponents, he might be saying... I'm a Ukrainian looking to retain my country's sovereignty and keep control of its own borders, laws and money. Why is this nicotine-stained manfrog telling me that's a bad idea? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood, and thanks to Ellie and Matt Withers for standing in last week. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. Do please listen to our new podcast, The 27, available in this podcast stream. And don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you've got this podcast. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, please subscribe to The New European, theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social, you can join our Facebook readers group, or you can follow us on Twitter at The New European. And follow me on Twitter if you like. It's at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. So until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.